0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Oranogo. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now, for this week's teaching. Oh, well, good morning, church! Oh, you knew better than that. Good morning, church. Good morning. I think you're here like a, a dentist appointment or something? This is horrible. I'm glad you're here. If you're visiting, my name is Mark, and I get the privilege of being on the staff as one of the ministers here, and we're glad you're with us, as you are giving your generosity this morning to help ministry take place all over the globe. Uh, we're appreciative of that and would ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Uh, today's gonna be a little more interactive than you might be, uh, A, used to or B, comfortable with, but trust us, uh, today's gonna be an expression of worship. Uh, at the end of the message and there's a card that was put on the seat that you're sitting on when you walked in. If you just hold on to that, I'll explain that at the end of my message and how we're going to participate uh, by using that card. We are in Luke chapter 14 and in Luke chapter 14 and 15 in Luke's gospel are very significant chapters in his story of Jesus because he's taking us Uh, in the final months toward his death. Now, it'll take us a good year to take away these final months and talk about them and preach through the text. But what Luke is doing is he's showing us that Jesus is indirectly going through towns and villages on his way to the final Passover meal at which he will be betrayed by one of his disciples, unjustly uh, treated in a court case, and uh, criminally executed. And Luke is telling us all of these details Uh, as we go through. Now, if you are visiting with us, we've been journeying with this since November of 2016, preaching through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, putting them together in a time frame, a chronology of Jesus' life. And we have seen five movements in the life of Jesus. We're in between the fourth and fifth movements right now, in the fourth, called the Revolution. And this is where Jesus is projecting what God really asked people to do and become for him and how the religious people of his day couldn't handle it and would eventually kill him for it. And so we're in this stage of the revolution, heading toward the victory, which will be found on the cross and through the resurrection. Our text today takes place in an unnamed town, so let's read the first six verses. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Luke's gospel is one of my favorite of the four. Not that it's better than the others, but there's a reason I like Luke's gospel more than the others because Luke talks about meals more than any of the of the authors in there. And I just think that's holy to be talking about food. And so here he is. Luke is talking about a meal. And Luke does this amazing thing. He highlights, Matthew does it almost equally, but Matthew and Luke talk a lot about the banquets and the parables about food and meals, and he's gonna take us, he's leading us to that moment where Luke administers to us the Lord's Supper and then takes us to the great promise of the great banquet, the messianic banquet when Jesus returns. There is a food theme here, and it is of God, and I like it. And today we're gonna look at one of those moments where Jesus uses the imagery of a celebration banquet, and he turns it on its head, and instructs us of some principles. But as we're going through this, what I want to do is just show you some gems in the first six verses that I discovered in my study, and hopefully they'll make your tail wag like they do mine. The very first one is this. It said that he was invited, and he was being carefully watched. This is sad to me, because Jesus was invited to this celebratory meal, but he really wasn't a special guest. It wasn't about hospitality. It wasn't about honoring him and loving him. They set him up. This would happen over and over and over that Jesus would be set up by these people. You see, the Sabbath meal that he was invited to, this celebration, is the most legalistic of all the meals the Jews had. In other words, if you did it right, whatever that is, if you did it right, then you were proclaiming yourself to be righteous. If you didn't do it right, then you were obviously not a follower of God. And they would use the Sabbath meal and the celebration as an indictment against those who didn't match up to their standards. So what should have been an invitation to celebrating God's goodness in the Passover, it actually became a litmus test for whether or not a person was fit. And they wanted Jesus to violate the Sabbath because Jesus would often violate their laws. And I'll explain what that means in just a moment. But it's sad to me that they brought Jesus in to trap him. It's even more sad that they thought they could. You You with me? They thought they were smart enough to trick him. And he was like, no, I'm God. And so he shows them a new way. You see, they knew that Jesus did not honor their commitments. In fact, in verse 3, he says, is it lawful? And that may seem like a strange question, but let me tell you what he's actually done here. He's saying to them, is this God's will or yours? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In other words, what would God say about that compared to what you would say about that? For those of you who don't have an extensive Old Testament background, I can give you a simple illustration of what's taking place here. Let's say, and it doesn't, but let's say in the Old Testament it said that a preacher preaching on this stage needs to stay three feet away from the edge of the stage so as not to fall. The religious leaders of Jesus' day decided that the rest of us couldn't understand three feet and were very likely to step over it accidentally and, and hurt ourselves, so they decided to make the rule that you had to stay this far back. And anybody who went closer than this did not honor them and did not honor their rules and should be put away with. Jesus said, so is it three feet or eight feet? Is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? Because the answer is, it is not unlawful, but it was unlawful to these people. And so Jesus raises this question, and in verse four, now let me tell you, if you grew up in my generation, especially if you grew up in a church that used the King James Bible, and you still are, I'm not making fun of it. But your passage might say, the man suffered from dropsy. I never knew what dropsy was. I thought he was clumsy, honestly. I really did. I thought he just broke china all the time because he couldn't figure it out. And that was, that was an illness? You need to heal my little brother. But anyway, so <laughs> it wasn't that. I found out that the condition he had was the swelling of the body with excess fluids. It would be a very painful condition to the nerve endings. It would cause the skin to become tight and every touch of it, if you ever had a a bloating issue or a swelling issue and someone touches that part of the skin, you're like, please don't. So this man was all, he was swelled up and he was at this meal and here's the sad thing. Jesus wasn't there so they could be hospitable and neither was this guy. He wasn't invited because he was a friend. He wasn't invited to participate in the meal. He was set as bait. Because they knew on the Sabbath, this, when the standards had to be honored, that Jesus would not leave this man alone, Jesus would heal him. So isn't it funny, they decided to use Jesus' goodness against him. And they have this man at the meal, and then it says that Jesus reached down and touched the man, which I, I want to remind you what I've told you already, this probably would have been painful to the man, and Jesus wasn't being cruel, he was being compassionate. And then he healed him. Now Jesus could have healed him with words, or a wink, or a puff of smoke because he's God. But he reached out to this man that none of them would touch. And he put, placed his hand on him and he healed him. But that's not the most beautiful piece of this. To me, the most beautiful piece is at the end of verse four. And he sent him on his way. Now, we might think he's being dismissive, but actually, here's the beauty of this for me. He was brought there by the man who... the whoever's home this was, he was brought by that man into his home to be used as an object lesson to trip Jesus up. And Jesus dismisses him from all the social expectations and he says to him, you can go. Do you get the freedom there? The goodness of Jesus, he frees him from his disease and he frees him from all the social expectations that made him a slave to this other guy. And the man leaves. And Jesus said, you can go. Two men in the room that day, neither one of them really guessed both of them object lessons and Jesus frees one and he remains himself. And then Jesus does something that I just think is absolutely brilliant. And if I get to brag on Jesus, that's a good day. Jesus says to him, so let me ask you this question. Now notice when he asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It says that they, they would not respond. Then he asks them another question and you're going to notice and they will not respond. He says to him, Which one of you who has a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? Which of you wouldn't do that? And none of them answer because they know the answer is, no, I would save him, which is interesting because reason with me this morning. If a child falls into a well, what's in the well? Water, fluids. Let's just call it fluids for the sake of consistency. So if he falls down there, whether it's muddy or clear water or whatever, if they fall in there, a child, by definition, falls in the well What's going to happen to them? They're going to drown. And if a dog or a cat falls into the well, one's a joy, one, anyway, uh, (laughs) it falls in there. What's going to happen to them? They're, They're going to drown. What was the condition of the man who was brought into the room as the illustration? He was drowning in his own body by the buildup of fluids that would have taken his life. Isn't Jesus really good at what he does? He basically said, that's funny. If your child was drowning, you would heal him. And if your your animal fell in the well and was drowning, you would save it, but you're judging me that I'm saving this man who was drowning inside of his own body. Jesus is brilliant. If you haven't heard that before, you can quote me. He's brilliant. So Jesus can't walk away from this, and he won't leave. He freed the man, but he wouldn't free himself. He stayed. Let's look at verses 7 through 11, because Jesus then changes the conversation from the condition of that man and the condition of their Sabbath rules to the condition of their hearts. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place, then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus just stole their moment while they were trying to correct him so he could correct us. I want to make two two substantive points from this story, and then I'm going to talk about how we're going to interact with it. The first substantive point I want to make is every one of us is looking for a place, and it is natural. Every one of us is looking for a community we fit in. Every one of us wants to know our place, whether you're male or female, young or old, it doesn't matter. We all want to know what our status is. How do we fit in? Do we fit in? Where do we fit in? And can we fit in? And if we fit in, can we stay fitting in? Every single one of us is created. All the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, God has created us to have social, physical, emotional, spiritual needs. We're here for a reason. It's to work and work is not a labor. Work is a blessing. We have a reason, a purpose. But we also have a community that, that helps our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. All of that play itself out. So I, I don't want you to hear me say that our desire to know how we fit in is wrong. It's natural. The way we use it can be corrupt. And this is what Jesus is addressing to his audience. Now, I remember at the youngest time as a kid, and I don't know what you all called it, but it was a game that my brothers and I played, there were four of us, and we would play this game, and it was called Shotgun. Now I don't mean we had real guns, we didn't. Shotgun was that game you played to get the front seat next to the driver in a vehicle. Can you relate? I don't know what the kids call it today, probably still shotgun. And I don't know what my parents' generation called it F at all. They probably didn't have cars, you know, they who rode the second seat on the horse, I don't know. But I knew the rules of shotgun were this. Number one, you had to be outside the house approaching the car before you could call it. You couldn't call it 24 hours or 48 hours in advance. You had to be outside, and you first went outside on the way to church. and yell, shotgun, and everybody was ah! And then I would slide into the passenger seat of the vehicle. And there would be my dad driving, and I would sit next to my dad. My brothers finally knew their place they did they understood you are not me and you should want to be and there i would sit in the seat and there were several times i knew the well that was the second rule to be honest with you you had to be outside to call shotgun the first rule was this mom never called it and always got it there were moments i thought it was just the boys four kids and dad going to some place and all of a sudden the door would open and there would come my mom and my dad would give me that look like what are you doing I mean, nothing. And I have to go sit in the back. And by that time, I got the hump seat, right? Because then they'd sit like, no, no, you get the hump. And I'm like, ah, shotgun ruined me. But it was a quest for a place. And then I grew up, it wasn't just with my brothers, it was with my friends. Who's more athletic? Who's more handsome? Who had better hair? I mean, it could go on and on and on, right? You could, I used to. Anyway, uh... You would just measure all the time. Who's the best athlete? Who's the best looking? Whose dad makes the more money? Whose mom makes the more money? Whose parents stayed at home? Whose didn't? Who rode the best vehicles? Who had the dumpy vehicles? You know, who had to take a bike to practice? Who got dropped off by their folks? There was this place going on in my life all the time. I was always being measured by how I fit in and where I didn't fit in and could I fit in and could I stay in if I did fit in. And it just became this thing. This natural thing can become so corrupt. And Jesus saw this moment where he saw this meal, which was to be a celebration. The Sabbath meal, a celebration of God's goodness for us. And it turned into who was who and who wasn't. So much so, at this meal, they invited a guy who wasn't even asked to stay. He was just an illustration. How demeaning. He knew his place, didn't he? He wasn't with these people. He wasn't welcome at all. In fact, he can go home now. Your purpose is over. And Jesus shows them that there is this quest in all of us to know our place, but we're defining it the wrong way. We're defining it in all the wrong ways. It's like calling shotgun just so everybody else has to sit in the back. It's a selfish act. And all it is is to secure our reputation and our feelings about our reputation. And Jesus said, shouldn't you secure your character before you secure your reputation? The status symbols of today may be distinct, because in Jesus' day, it wasn't what the car you drove or the clothes you wear or what kind of occupation you had or education or where you lived or where you didn't live or who invited you to their things. Actually, the only status symbol that the community really knew was when a banquet was, was thrown, who got invited and who didn't. And so Jesus takes the opportunity of the status symbol, the placeholder, if you will. And he, he pointed it out and he turned it upside down on its head. There are clearer placeholders in all of our society, and all of us know what they are. I don't have to keep going on and on about it. But Jesus said your placeholder either declares your humility or exposes the lack of it. I want to say that again. Our placeholders that give us our place and status either declare our humility or expose the lack of it. This is what Jesus was saying in his little parable. And this wasn't, hey, how to be successful socially. This wasn't one of those sermons. He's simply saying, I want you to see your heart. You're working so hard to have people think a certain way of you that you've denied the one reality that every one of us... You see, I can give you a placeholder that nobody can take away from you. I can give you a placeholder. I can offer it to you today, not from me. Don't worry about what I think. But I can give you a placeholder. As a preacher of the gospel... That nobody can take away from you, nobody can diminish, nobody can question, and you will know who you are for the rest of your days. In fact, you will know who you are through eternity. The only placeholder that really matters is the humility to admit without Jesus, I am nothing. And if we have that, there's no social group or car maker or clothing or financial performance sheet, retirement funds praise, awards, hall of fames, none of those are going to exist when we're gone. And when we're gone, after the eulogy, none of them are going to matter. But I can give you the one placeholder. If you humble yourself before God, he will lift you up. And nobody, Romans chapter 8, nobody or anything can take it from you. You see, desiring a place is not unusual or wrong. We were created for it. But finding our place and trading in our place with Jesus for a place that temporarily makes people feel something about us or include us is not only awkward, it's foolish. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it this way, God sets himself against the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. How does God set himself against the proud? He lets you stand on whatever place you want to stand on he lets you identify yourself by any measure you want to identify yourself and listen some of the people in the room are really really wealthy but you can't take it with you some of you are really popular some of you are really beautiful some of you are really accomplished some of you are very talented athletic skilled you're you're bright you just you're the kind of people people look up to and there's nothing wrong with that but please don't you ever ever think that that placeholder is greater than the way God looks at you. He loves you. He's passionate for you. He died for you. He has sacrificed all of what we would consider pride to to come and humble himself and walk on earth to give his life on a cross for us. That's the placeholder that we Christians not only must hold, but we must offer. We can't be like, I got mine. You better find yours. No, no, no. Not only can I say And I am a child. I am the son of God. And he has adopted me into his family. Not only can I say that, but the good news is this. I can look at you and say, you can be a daughter or son of the same king, not because we're worthy, but because he's good. And there's nothing that can take that away. His goodness will not be compromised by our status or our standards. And God sets himself against the proud, but he shows favor to the humble who would like a little favor today who would like a who would like to just know and bask in the fact that no matter what the world says of you how accomplished you are or not no matter how you played on friday won or lost no matter what your team did yesterday no matter what your week was like whether you're employed or unemployed shocked or happy who needs favor today spend some time knowing who you are in the eyes of god and nothing can be taken away from you that matters see jesus not only called for humility Please spend a little time this week remembering how humble he was by how he lived his life, giving up the best parts of heaven and all the power and authority so he could experience the worst parts of earth and offer us hope. Verses 12 through 14. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Interesting. See, I told you that every one of us is looking for a place. I also want to tell you that what Jesus offers us, no one is worthy, and yet all are welcomed. Nobody who finds their place in Jesus Christ can look at him and say, you're just repaying me for all I've done. No, we live our lives to repay Jesus for all he's done. But he owes us nothing. You see, Jesus points out that the reason these banquets were status symbols was if I would invite you to to a banquet, I fully expected that when you had one, who would you invite? Me. And if you didn't invite me, then I had leverage on you. And socially, with the hospitality codes and all the additional things the religious people put together, that it just became paying back the same people with status over and over. It's like the fourth grader who who doesn't get invited to a birthday party and is just heartbroken and we adults want to look at him with all the sensitivity we want to have. We will look at him and go, get used to it. Because not everyone's your best friend forever and not every party you're going to be invited to. And guess what? The sun will come up tomorrow and you'll still be the same kid we all love. You can't be measured by the status of the world when you're already measured by the king himself. It's hard to live in a world that is measuring everybody for everything, but it's great to live in a kingdom where no one is measured by anything more than pure love. So, all of us are unworthy, and yet every one of us is welcome. We're all invited. See, the host was buying recognition, he was buying status, and he was being repaid back. And if he invited the right people, the party was talked about. If there was a People magazine back in Jesus' day, that's what would be on the cover. Best party this year. Look all who was there. But Jesus said, why don't you invite the people who can't repay you? Why don't you invite the people that have never been asked? Why don't you use your status and your recognition to bless those who can't bless you back because you have been blessed yourself? And that's what Jesus calls us to do. We should do the right thing, not so that God will honor us. We should do the right thing because he's already honored us. He's already given us more than we ever deserve. All Christians are called to the same healthy dependence on God's love and the same generosity in sharing that love with anyone we meet. So Jesus does not prohibit us from doing the right thing. He just says, don't do the right thing so that you can receive more. Do the right thing because you've already received enough. That your status as a child of the king... Should you be a believer and a follower of Jesus? Should you have made the choice that we just saw made, you know, with half the curtain down, and it still worked. Thank God for that. I'm so fearful, half the curtain would be down when I walked out this morning. But that young man just gave his life to Jesus Christ in a public way. He said, I need to be washed clean as a sinner, and I want to walk with Jesus in hope. And that same pronouncement is not now, he's got to measure up, and now he's got to do this and that. I got good news for, for my brother in Christ. You are already fully loved and fully measured as a child of the King. Now live like it. Experience it. Walk in it. Celebrate it. Live like a resurrected man and watch the world look at you weird. But don't let the world measure you. You're already measured. When we serve others from unselfish hearts, we are living out the kingdom. We are living out the message of Jesus and the hope. You see, the place we have in the kingdom is only by God's graciousness and not our worthiness. The reason we're invited to the banquet, remember Luke talked about food. When, when Jesus gave the Lord's Supper, he did an amazing thing. Not only did he offer symbols of his body and blood, which would forecast what he was about to do the next day in dying on the cross and being broken and bleeding for us. Not only did it foreshadow that, but I want you to ponder with me some pretty cool things. I want you to think with me in just a few moments... Who was at the table when Jesus did what he did? And you and I will understand the place we have in the kingdom is only by God's graciousness and not our worthiness. So how do we live? How do we live out this resurrected life? How do we live out this calling and measured by God, loved and cherished and valued and known? In James chapter four, verse seven, as James continued, remember he said, God exalts those, God takes care and shows favor on those who will humble themselves and know who they are. But he also opposes those who stand up as if they're better than anybody else. He continues, James writes, submit yourself. And I want you to notice as I read this, please, as I read it, think about the work that's before us, knowing who we are in Christ. James is writing to a group of believers, early Christians being persecuted for their faith. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will show you favor. James is writing to Christians. And if I, could, if I can title everything that I think James is saying, it's a simple phrase. Know thyself. Spend time not worrying about how we can trick people into believing we're something. Know yourself. Know your weaknesses and your strengths. Know your struggles and your redemption. Know the goodness of Jesus Christ in your life and what he's offering you. Don't remember, to, I'm better than I've ever been before. That's fantastic. That's living out the resurrection. But the only reason you had a chance to get better, the only reason you have a hope for the future is because of Jesus Christ's worthiness, not ours. Know yourself celebrate it. Now, someone would read that and go, man, James is a downer. What a buzzkill. He's telling me all the time, you know, hate yourself. No. He's actually saying, know yourself. Remember where you've come from and remember who got you there. It wasn't self-effort. It wasn't riches and fame and accomplishment and what people thought of you. It was the goodness of Jesus Christ alone. So I want to do as I close, I want to talk to your head Your hearts, then I'm going to give your hands something to do here in just a moment. To your head, I want you to hear Jesus' words today and realize that He is turning the order of recognition and He's saying, Don't call shotgun anymore. Sit on the hump. Just be glad you're in the vehicle. Enjoy it. Think about that. Recognize that self righteousness is not the goal, that a righteousness of Jesus is the goal to live honoring it respect what jesus did by inviting anybody else to the celebration don't just be pleased that you're invited to the great banquet and there's a seat for you with your name on it and you are welcome and it doesn't matter if you sit at the end of the table or front of the table we're just aren't we just grateful to be invited to your hearts focus on jesus worthiness and receive it as sufficient let that be the measurement that matters not what parties you get invited to or if people think you're cool or fun or anything else. Let all of that go. Those things come in their own way in time and then they disappear in their own way in time. But remind yourself that you've been invited by the king and nothing can take that from you. And we wait expectantly for all that's good. Cherish it. It's a gift. Hold on to it. We can never repay him, nor does he ask us to. Receive grace. Receive grace. Not as some abstract concept, but as an unwarranted pleasure. For your hands, this morning, and I want to be free and clear with this, you don't have to do this this morning. No one's going to be counting or taking pictures and sending you comments. I'd like you to take that card that was placed on your seat this morning, if you still have it. And on it is written ism. Now, some of you are thinking, what does the I stand for? And the S, no, it just stands for ism. Let me explain. We, in our language, put an ism on any philosophy that's represented within our culture. Isms abound all around us. It's a philosophy of a way we live our lives. It's stuff we give ourselves permission to or things we hold on to as structural for our community. Today, what I'm going to ask you to do is to give gracefully and bless other people. But to do that, you have to understand your own heart. Know thyself. See, there are practices that are not great, and I'm not gonna beat you up this morning, but I want you to walk with me because here's what we're gonna do. I want you to hold that card, and if you have a pen or something to write on, maybe you're a writer and you might wanna add some stuff to it, or maybe you just wanna hold it. And when, we're, when I'm all done, there's gonna be a moment for you. There's gonna be a time of meditation and reflection for you to sit with these cards and respond. But let me tell you what ISM stands for because what it is, is there was a banquet And they brought a man who wasn't even invited to use him as an example. And they felt superior to him and they dismissed him willingly and they didn't even care about his condition. And then they were celebrating the Sabbath, the rest of God. And we're about to enter into the Lord's Supper, whether it's called communion or Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or whatever you want to refer to it as. It represents the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary. That's not a concept, that's a fact. And when we gather to take it, we can often be the person who's throwing the dinner. We can often enter into it thinking, well, I deserve to be at this table, instead of realizing I'm the last person who deserves to be at this table. And when you look at this, there's some things that go on in our culture, especially, I'm just gonna talk about American culture because that's who I'm talking to today. People immersed in it. There's sexism. Sexism is feeling like, well, men are superior or men are evil, or women are inferior or women are whatever. And it just builds into our culture. You hear the arguments going on. I'm so, my heart is so sore over what's taking place in dialogue in our country. It's not fixing any problems. It's only separating and dividing. And yet, in the church, there can be this whole sexism theme that says, well, this is better, and these are lesser, or these are evil, and these are powerful and corrupt. There's racism, the belief that people of another race are inferior or Superior that the color of the skin or, or such decides a person's value or their origins. nationalism, boy this may be the American sin it 's a feeling of superiority over other countries, like america's god 's country it's not. God is not American, he's never has been, He never will be. God loves every other nation as much as he loves America. He doesn't have a favorite. Even the Jews were his favorite, his loved, so that they could become the nation that incorporated all other nations, so that every tongue and every tribe will gather around the throne of God and sing his praises. And it will be in different dialects. And so, if you think English is what God speaks, you need to pay attention. I love my country, but I'm not defined by my country. I no longer have to go to the measurement of man. I can be measured by my king. I am his son because he loved me well, not because I was raised in the right country. There's ethnocentrism, which simply means if people don't do things the way we do them, and then they don't need to be done, or they're inferior, or they're lesser and lesser, and we judge people. And whether we know it or not, we buy into this lie that we're superior because of what we do, rather than who loves us all. There's materialism. Well, I don't really need God, but I can just, if I have power, and I have authority, and I have cash, I can have what I want, and then I'll call God when I can't get what I want and it's an idol. And it keeps people from celebrating the beautiful invitation they've received to the banquet of our King. Almost like, well, I contribute so much and I do so much that I've earned a place. You've never, ever will any of us earn a place at the Messianic banquet. It's by invitation only, and it will be given to the unworthy, not to the worthy. Hedonism, well, that's an ism that's, prevalent in our country and that is if I feel a certain way and I want a certain thing I should not be denied if God really loves me he will meet every one of my feelings and he will give me every one of my desires and I'm telling you we need to repent of that because God's truth is for our good even when it doesn't feel like it and then sectarianism And this is what happens within a church more than we want to admit. Sectarianism is when we believe that our tribe is better than every other tribe. And in a room this large, there are Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and Catholics and and independent Christians and people from denominations. I met a couple in here this morning that were from the Mormon church and there's people in our community that differ and we look down on them and think, well, no, our brand, our tribe, the way we do Sunday is better than everybody else. Oh, Father, may we repent of that because I just think without Jesus Christ being the center we are all groping in the dark trying to impress God and he can't see us in the dark because we won't step into the light so there's a pretty fancy group of isms what's yours? what is the thing if you're really honest with your heart and time when we come to the Lord's Supper and we're about to take the body and blood of Jesus Christ trust me with this one thing there is no superior person who will ever take the body and blood of Jesus Christ but only the one who gave it to us And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the body in and he broke the bread. And he took the glass of wine and he handed it to his disciples, all 12. He gave it to Judas and he gave it to Peter. Both of those men would abandon him that night, one eternally and one temporarily. And he gave it to both of them knowing full well that They would walk away from him. He told Peter, You're going to abandon me tonight. And he still gave him his body and blood. There is no place for superiority when we take the elements of communion. It's not about gender. It's not about race. It's not about nationality. It's not about power. It's not about influence. It's not about authority. It's about Jesus. But hear my heart this morning. I'm not angry and I'm not trying to bring shame. I want us to awaken. Those that humble themselves before God and receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ will be sealed by that body and blood and loved forever. And those who feel that this is maybe, I deserve this invitation. I should have a place at the table. Need to understand. That the worthiness of Jesus is what defines the Lord's Supper, not our worthiness, not our years of service, years of teaching, years of giving. None of that matters. We do that because he gave us the invitation of a lifetime. Those who humble themselves will be lifted up. This morning, around this room, there are two crosses. There are two crosses to my right and left, right up here by the tables with the lights. You may not be able to see them. You will when you come forward. There are four crosses at the back. So you don't have to come to the front. You can spread out and go throughout the room and this will be an opportunity. In just a few moments, Eliza will will tell you uh, when the appropriate time to move is. And around the room are tables and you'll see baskets full of the emblems. We're going to give the emblems of the Lord's Supper out differently than we normally do. They won't be on trays. There's a little container with juice and on a foil piece on top is a a little piece of bread. And we're going to ask that as you come forward, we'd like you to take that ism card and we'd like you to write down the thing to answer this particular question. In what areas of my life am I seeking to better my self-image, my self-worth, and my place in life at the expense of someone who Jesus loves just as much? What do I need to come before Jesus and humble myself today and say, Father, forgive me for feeling superior? And for some of you, you may even have to say, Father, forgive me for not believing that you can love me, that you can forgive me and you can redeem me. And then as a symbol of what these elements mean, we'd like you to to take the card and come to one of the crosses and at the foot of the cross is a basket. And we'd like you as an act of worship to take that card and place it in the basket and leave it at the cross because Jesus made us all equal there, all sinners who needed redeemed. And then as you proceed, pick up the emblems of the body and blood of Jesus and in community, sit in your your seat and spend a few moments recognizing what a gift we've received in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Spend a few moments asking yourself to question as you come before the cross. The question on the screen, write down what you need to on your card. No one will read them. I'm not going to process them as the next sermon series. Everybody can relax. Just sit there, spend a few moments asking yourself, Jesus, have I ever let your gift become about me rather than about you? Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn,